Well, good morning, community of faith. I'm so glad that you're here today. I know I've had a chance to meet a lot of you, uh, but not all of you guys. And so as we begin this morning, I want to take a little bit of time to get to know you a little bit, but also let you know a little bit about me. And the way we're going to do that is through a few confessions, some things I just got to get off my chest that I think some of you can even probably relate to, uh, but some things that bother me. Uh, I, I imagine that uh, there are small things in all of our lives that bother us uh, from time to time. And so I'm going to give a few of those. Uh, you can agree, you don't have to agree, you may not find yourself in this spot. But the first confession that I want to make, I confess that I get irrationally angry whenever my text bubbles are green. Anyone else feel that way? Yeah, okay. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? You're the problem. <laughs> yeah, you're the one, you, you did it, all right? Uh, if you know, you know, if you don't, it's okay, we won't judge you too bad. Uh, the next confession, I confess that I cannot have my back to the door at a restaurant. Anyone else relate to that one? Anyone else paranoid? Yeah, the problem is when you go to a restaurant and there's multiple of you and you don't talk about it, you're just all gunning for the same seat, right? You're going for the same spot and you're a little mad at them whenever they get it first. That's good, that's good. Uh, well, I, I have another confession. I confess that I find it to be one of the biggest signs of disrespect when someone takes my seat that I always sit in. Who feels that way? Yeah, that's disrespectful. How many of you feel that way this morning? Please don't raise your hand. It'll be awkward for those sitting around you. But yeah, it's, it's annoying, especially if they know. Like if you always sit in the same spot, like, oh, it's funny. No, it's not. It's not funny. It's annoying. It's rude. It's disrespectful. This one, if you do know me a little bit, you probably know this about me, but I confess that I have an unhealthy addiction to coffee. Uh, I drink a lot of coffee every single day. How many of you can relate? Five, six, seven plus cups a day, a whole bunch of coffee. Probably not healthy for you, but you know, I said it was unhealthy. I'm working through it. Uh, so uh, that's a little bit about me. Uh, but this time, I want us to do a little trust and vulnerability exercise. And so we're going to confess something to each other, but don't worry. Uh, don't get, don't get too, too worried. It's not going to be a deep, dark secret <laughs> about yourself. At least don't do that yet. Um, but we're going to make a confession. So I'm going to confess something. And the reason that I say this is because I would say all of us can find ourselves with this confession to make. We all find ourselves in this kind of setting, in this situation. And so here it is. I confess that I'm insecure. Now we're going to confess to each other. I want you to turn to your neighbor. Real quick, and I want you to repeat after me. Turn to your neighbor and say, I confess that I'm insecure. Good, good. All right, now turn to your neighbor that you clearly don't like as much because they're your second option. Turn to your other neighbor and say, I confess that I'm insecure. Now, there might be some of you in the room, I know, because I'm one of you, that's like, <laughs> not me. I'm not insecure at all. I'm bothered that you would even mention such a thing. Well, I want you to know that you're probably more insecure than everyone else in the room. I can relate. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. But for myself, I recently found myself in this setting, this situation where I felt incredibly insecure. In fact, just a few months ago, my wife and I, we went to a wedding. And the only real connection we had to the, the couple was that we were good friends with the parents of the groom. So obviously, they're going to be pretty busy. And so we were going to go to this wedding. We knew the couple a little bit, really just the groom a little bit. But again, our only connection was with the parents of the groom. And so we go up to this wedding, of course, drive out into the middle of nowhere where every wedding venue is. 
And as we get to our parking spot, I immediately start feeling incredibly anxious. My heart's pounding. We get out of the car. I see all of these people around me. I know none of them. We start walking toward the venue into the room. And we see that the wedding venue the, that, that was once the ceremony was going to be outside, because of rain, it was now inside. And so instead of going outside to sit in rows where you don't have to interact with anyone, it was going to be in the place with the reception around these round tables. And in that moment, my heart is throbbing as we're walking into this venue. My wife and I were both very introverted, and so this is an incredibly uncomfortable situation. And if you've been to a wedding where you didn't know a lot of people, you know that you're going to inevitably sit at a table with everyone that knows each other except for you. You're going to be the odd one out every time. I don't know how it works. And so as we're walking into this venue, we're desperately looking around to find someone, anyone that we know. And there, as we're scanning the room, I see one of my really, really good friends waving, smiling, waving his hand, looking really goofy right in the back. And the moment I see him, immediately all of the anxiety leaves. It left. I found myself relaxed because I knew that there was a place that I belonged. I knew that there was a place that I was welcome. I'll say it again. I'm insecure, and so are you that's okay. We're going to unpack that a little bit. Maybe for you, it's not the anxiety of finding yourself in a situation at a wedding where you're going to be in this social setting. But whenever I think about those situations, I sometimes wonder to myself, why? I work at a church. I spend my time doing that, meeting with people that I don't know, interacting with other people, but I feel anxious in these sort of situations. Maybe for you, you go and hang out with a group of people And you find yourself, as soon as you're done with the conversation, you're replaying that conversation in your head again and again and again. Did I say something okay? Is that fine? Maybe you hang out with a group of friends and you get in the car and you're driving home with your spouse or one of your friends and you're asking them, was what I said okay? Is that fine? Maybe you find yourself where you just try to drown out all of your insecurities by buying things to impress people you don't even like. Or maybe for you, you find yourself in this spot of insecurity, so you think that you're going to become the drunk you, because the drunk you is the you that you think that everyone else actually enjoys to be around. Wherever you find yourself, all of us care about what people think of us. We're all insecure. And this morning, what I want you to know, what I want us to really think through, is how do we find ourselves out those insecurities. I'm insecure, but that's okay. And we're going to answer the why that's okay. What is it about that that's okay? That doesn't feel very okay. And so I just want us to take a breath. Because I want you to really confront something about yourself this morning. Because just like I found myself invited to the table, welcome to the table, there is a table that we belong to, that we've been invited to. A table with a friend waving at us, trying to get our attention to say, you have a place, you belong. You don't have to face those insecurities. You don't have to get stuck on those different insecurities that you have asking yourself, how do I belong and do I fit in? As we keep going, I want you to really think through that. What is keeping you potentially from the table? The table that you've been invited to we continue. I want to I pray. I want to pray that we really open our minds 
in our hearts to what it is that God's trying to show us here in the next few minutes. God, thank you so much again for today. And I pray as we confront our insecurities, we think through the ways that we find ourselves being insecure. Pray that you open our eyes to see that there's a table that you've invited us to. That no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what we've experienced, no matter what we've seen, no matter what we've been through, you have a table that you've invited us to be a part of. And God, I pray that in this moment we find, we understand what it is that might keep us from time to time, or really all the time, from the table that you've invited us to. It's in Jesus' name I pray. As we scan through the Bible, we see all kinds of different stories that are surrounding a table. A situation in which the people are learning around a table, they're seeing a table. One of those times is in Exodus chapter 25. It's when Moses, the one who brought the Israelites out of Egypt right after the plagues, uh, is talking to God. And God is telling Moses, I want you to construct a tabernacle. What the tabernacle was, was it was a dwelling place for God. How God was going to dwell with his people, the Israelites, along with them as they were on their journey into their land. In this tabernacle, what God told Moses to do was to construct, the very first thing you construct is going to be something called the Ark of the Covenant. What the Ark of the Covenant was going to hold was it was gonna hold a few things, one of those being the Ten Commandments, the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on it, saying, this is how you're supposed to relate with me and how you're supposed to relate with one another. After God tells Moses to construct the Ark of the Covenant, the second thing that he tells them to construct, to build, is a table. It was called the table of showbread. Literally in Hebrew, it meant the table of the presence, the table before the face of God. And so that when you look at this table, this table that has 12 loaves of bread stacked on top of it, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, you can know that I am present with you that I've made a promise to you. As we fast forward through the Bible, we get to the New Testament in the book of Luke. And time and time again, you see that Jesus, the Savior, the one that God sent for you and for me, we see that some of the most memorable times that he shares with people, miraculous things that he does happen around a table. And one of those is probably one of the most famous scenarios that we we know from the Bible. It's called the Last Supper. It's when Jesus gets together at a table with his 12 his 12 close friends, his 12 disciples, to make a new commitment to them saying, I'm going to be with you. We're gonna take this in remembrance of me knowing this is the last time that we're gonna eat together before I'm taken, I'm arrested, I'm beaten, and I'm killed. I would say one of the most fascinating stories surrounding the Bible around a table happens in 2 Samuel chapter nine. And so if you have your Bible or your phone with an app, you can go to 2 Samuel chapter nine and we're gonna spend a little bit of time there. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about this guy named David who conquered, who defeated Goliath. And David is about to be king as we set up into 2 Samuel 9. And by the time we're in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is actually the king. But in order to get there, what we see about David's life is that David, becomes high up in the army of Israel from Saul after he defeats Goliath. He raises to a prominent place. And while he's in the court with Saul, the king, he becomes best friend with this guy named Jonathan. And Jonathan is the son, the eldest son of the king Saul. And so they become incredibly good friends. And as David goes to battle again and again and again, what we see is that David is incredibly successful. In fact, so successful that whenever they go into the city, whenever they come back from war, when they come back from a battle, when the people see David, they cheer louder for him than they cheer for Saul. 
imagine this is a problem for someone that's the king. So what Saul decides to do is he's going to plot to kill David. He's going to enlist Jonathan, his son, in order to help him kill David. But Jonathan remains loyal to his friend. Jonathan helps David out of the court, out of Israel, over to a different place. He helps to protect him, to get him to a safe place until it is time for him to return again. And right before they part ways, what David says to Jonathan is, he says, I promise that I'm going to watch out for you and your family. And the reason this is a big deal is because during this time period, what would happen is as a new dynasty, a new king took over, they would wipe out the family of the previous dynasty, which would be Saul, Jonathan, and his whole family. But David says it is not going to be that way with me. And when we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is king. Unfortunately, though, Jonathan and his brothers and his dad, Saul, have died in battle. But David is still looking to keep his commitment, keep his promise to Jonathan. We take a look, starting in verse 1, it says, this, it says, Then David said, Is there yet anyone left in the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone in the house of Saul of whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel and Lo-Devar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lo-Devar, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell, prost- fell on his face and prostrated himself and David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. Why does Mephibosheth act this way? Well, as you can imagine, whenever he's being summoned by the king, this kindness that's going to be showed to him, he probably doesn't feel like it's going to be kindness. We know that Mephibosheth was only five years old whenever his father died. And so he probably didn't know the relationship that Jonathan had with David. He may have heard about it, but he didn't know how true it might have been. And so he finds himself being summoned by the king, thinking he's probably going to die. And in his insecurity, in his fear, he falls on his face, pleading for his life. But what David does is he shows him kindness, an incredible kindness. As the story continues in verse 7, we see that it says, David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul. You shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself. He said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? So not only does David decide not to kill Mephibosheth, but he's going to restore his land and invite him to dine at the table, at the king's table regularly. But what we see about Mephibosheth is he's still fearful. He considers himself a dead dog. We see in this story that this man who used to be a part of the royal family, he was as high up as you could go, being the highest family, the grandson of the king, he finds himself in this situation where he's poor, he has nothing. He's crippled in both feet but he's being summoned by the king out of kindness. 
And this word kindness, it's a little bit more than that. It's this word called chesed. And what it means is it's this loyal love, this loving kindness, the kind of love, the kind of kindness that God showed to the Israelites as he was there with him. And what David shows Mephibosheth is this kind of kindness saying, I have invited you to the table to eat with me. We see that David meets Mephibosheth right where he is. He comforts him by inviting him to the table. And as the story continues, it says in verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. We see that for Mephibosheth, all had been lost. And I think all of us can relate to Mephibosheth in one way or another. At some point in time, things were going well. But he found him where the odds were stacked against him, where there was no way that he could succeed. Have you found yourself there before? Maybe for you, your father walked out of your life early on. And so as time has gone on, gone on, you have searched for a father figure, those that have not led up to and held at their end of the bargain, those that have abused their position, abused their power. Maybe for you, it might have been your mom struggled with an addiction that consumed her. Maybe you felt like you and your family just had to scrape by, or maybe you found yourself in a situation where your family had everything, everything you could ever want, everything you could ever need, except for one thing, that loving kindness, that loyal love, that love shown to you. We all find ourselves in this situation just like Mephibosheth. But what is so incredible is that at the very end of 2 Samuel chapter 9, the last words it says, and so he was lame in both feet, like we or he had forgotten that. And what's so incredible about this is that Mephibosheth didn't have to fix himself before he was invited to dine at the king's table. In fact, he came just as he was. And what David said is, I don't care what you've seen. I don't care what you have experienced. I'm inviting you to the table, to my table, to dine with me just as you are. And what's incredible about the table that we've been invited to is that we can come just as we are as well. You see, it wasn't, about what Mephibosheth did to earn himself there. He just had to take a seat. He had to take a seat at the table. And what I want us to understand is that we also have a seat that we need to take at the table. A seat that we've been invited to, but what even is the table? We talked about a table and a table to be invited to, that's cool, but what even is that? This table It's a place to find belonging. It's a place to find comfort, to find care, to be in communication, to be at a table with Jesus, to be at a table with God, knowing that we are not by ourselves, a place where we can make Jesus the boss of our lives, a place where we can know that we belong and that we are accepted just the way we are, that we don't have to fix ourselves before we get to this table and form a Fibosheth. I think just like for him, many of us, we don't find it that we are worthy of a seat at the table. I think I've done something too wrong. I've done something too bad. There's no way if someone knew who I really was, if they knew what I experienced, if they had known what I had seen, if they knew what I was a part of, if they knew my past, if they knew all of me, no way with that baggage would I be invited a seat at this table. I would be kicked out. 
But even then, we have a seat at this table. Maybe you've found yourself with a secret when you haven't told anybody. You've been holding on to it for years, maybe decades. I feel like if people really knew what I'd experienced in my life, I wouldn't be accepted here. I wouldn't have a place. Maybe for you, instead of finding yourself sitting at a table like that, you've actually decided that you're going to go your own way. You're going to, instead of sitting at the table, you're going to make your own table. You're going to come over here and not be interested in that table because you are so concerned with your success. You're so concerned with your career that the only thing that matters is you. To a point where you are so focused on that, you've pushed everyone else out, and it is just about you sitting at your own table. And you do this until you get to a point where you feel like there is no more hope. You feel all alone. You're always longing for more. So whether you find yourself in a situation where you feel uninvited or you find yourself feeling uninterested, what God is saying to us is that we have a seat at the table. In this story with Mephibosheth, one important thing for us to understand is that in this story, every single one of us is Mephibosheth. And David is Jesus. That we've been invited to a table just how we are. In fact, we see in Revelation chapter three, verse 20, it says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Are you going to answer the door? Are you going to take that seat that has been waiting on you? Whenever I think back to that day, whenever I was at that wedding, whenever I was anxious, whenever I was worried about what was gonna happen to me, was I gonna have a place where I was welcome, where I belonged? If I were honest with myself, the reason this insecurity creeps into my life is because my entire childhood, I was made fun of because I had a stutter. I couldn't speak well. I would freeze. I'd get nervous. Couldn't say my R's. I had to go to speech therapy all through childhood. And so whenever I find myself in this situation where I'm going to be surrounded by people I don't know, that anxiety, that insecurity creeps up into my life and I freeze. What I want you to know is that I am insecure, but that's okay. And the reason it's okay, the why, is because in Jesus I find my security. If it's not about earning your place at the table, we all find ourselves with different feelings, different experiences around the table. But I want you to know that you have a seat, one that belongs just to you, one that has your name on it. Maybe for you, you are struggling right now in this moment, some medical test, you're waiting to hear back, the test of a loved one. Maybe you have one that you care for in the hospital right now. You don't know what to do. You find yourself anxious and fearful. But even in that situation, even when we find ourselves, what God says, he says, I see you in your seat. It's still here. Maybe you find yourself holding on to that secret. You feel like you're not worthy, that you're uninvited, that if someone knew who you really were, knew what you had experienced, knew what you had seen, knew what you had been through, there is no way that you would have a seat at the table. What God said is, is, I see you, and your seat is still here. We find ourselves 
like there's no hope in our marriage, in our relationship with our child. We feel hopeless. We feel unsure of what is going to happen. God says, I see you in your hopelessness, and your seat is still here. Where you find yourself, not even at the table, sitting over here all by yourself, focused on your success, focused on your career, never being satisfied with where you are, where you found yourself, the things you've experienced, always longing for more. There's a God that says, even though you are never satisfied, even though you are alone, your seat is still here, that I've reserved a seat for you. And I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've seen. I don't care what your experiences are, no matter what you've been through, what you've seen, your failures, your addictions, your shortcomings, the places you found yourselves. I don't care what that is. I see what you have done. I see what you are doing and I see what you're going to do. But even in light of that, there's a seat with your name on it. And I've invited you to that table to dine with me. He says, I see you. Your seat is still here. No matter where you found yourself. And so whenever I find myself in those situations at that wedding, instead of being so worried, whenever I find my security in Jesus, I can start thinking, what can I do to impact the lives of these strangers, these people that I don't know, instead of so focused on what's gonna happen to me. Instead of whenever we know that we aren't defined by our insecurity, when we find ourselves anxious and fearful, instead of being so worried about that test result, we can know that we can have the confidence living today, knowing that God gave us this day to live. And so the anxiety and the fear, it doesn't have to consume us. We find ourselves with that secret thinking there's no way that anyone would accept me. We can have confidence knowing that, again, our seat is still here because in Jesus we find our security. I mentioned the table of showbread. At the table of showbread, it was a promise a promise that God was gonna be with his people. Saying, I know you're gonna be insecure. I know you're gonna find yourself at a loss, but that's okay because I will give you security. And when Jesus brings his disciples together that last supper, he invites them. He invites them to dine with him. To say, I see who you are. I see right where you are, come and dine with me. And here in a moment, we're gonna take communion together. But before you do, I want you to ask yourself, what is keeping you from this table? The table that you've been invited to? Is it something from your past? Is it something you're so focused in on? What is keeping you from this table? And as you think of this afternoon, this evening, as you get onto the things past here, I want you to do just one thing. Take five to 10 minutes. Talk with the people that you came here with, your spouse, your family. If you're watching on your own at home, or you're watching with a group of people, talk with them or talk with someone that you trust and ask yourself, ask them, what do you think is holding me back from my seat at the table? And I want you to know that no matter what you do, what you've seen, what you've experienced, what you've been a part of, there is nothing that is keeping you from your seat. And God is saying, I wanna walk with you in that. I wanna walk with you through that. I'm gonna be by you, with you, and for you. But I need you to take your seat at the table because you're not alone. What's holding you from the table? We 
see in Luke chapter 22. It says, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table. And the apostles with them, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this, share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. We had taken some bread and given thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten and said, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Take this in remembrance of me. And so as you sit there, we're gonna have a song. We're gonna take communion. But as you do, ask yourself, what is keeping you from that table? Because you've been invited to it. If you're watching online, you can get the communion elements. As you came in, you had the bag with the bread, the cup. As the band comes out, ask yourself, what is keeping me?